Welcome to Women on the Verge of a Financial Breakthrough, a podcast where we're figuring out finance one dumb question at a time. I'm the dummy, Caitlin Meredith, a coach and mediator based in the Bay Area, and... I'm Sarah Glacus. I'm an investor, advisor, and founder of Black Barn Financial and the Austin Women's Investing Group, which can be found on Meetup and Facebook. Before we start, do you know a woman who might be on the verge of a financial breakthrough? Will you text her a link to our show and maybe two other friends while you're at it? Also, please, if you can, leave us a review. This helps other women on the verge find us. And we read them and they make us happy cry. Sarah, I have always known that I'm dumb about finance, like, sorry, that I have never properly been educated about finance and investing in some pretty basic money concepts. But I truly never thought I would be asking you this question. And I apologize, I have a cold, so I'm all super nasally. Not quite as sexy as Kathleen Turner, but I would like to think on that spectrum. <laughs> um, what the fuck is a bank? Oh, that's not a dumb question these days, right? Um, It just seems like such a simple concept. Yeah. Why don't you explain to me what you think a bank is? Oh, right. This episode is me telling Sarah what a bank is, (laughs) (laughs) how to run one. And my idea is that we live in some place like the the wild west frontier towns mm-hmm. and it wasn't safe to walk around with all of your money in your pocket so one guy opened a store he called a bank that had like literal safes and everybody had their own safe and they put their money into that bank into their own safety what we would now call safety deposit box the exact money that they put in was theirs sweaty from their pocket into their little box with the lock on it. And maybe they would pay the guy essentially rent to keep their money for them. That is the opposite of how banks work in a lot of ways. But I appreciate the sentiment, right? Because that might be someone's first idea is that banks are set up to safeguard your money. Okay, so let me just let me just go back and say like what like what a bank is. So a bank does accept deposits from people or companies, right? You have your sweaty money in your pocket and you take it to the bank and you deposit it, right? I mean, in your my account. My money isn't sweaty, but yeah. <laughs> sweaty grimy covered in like gold dust from the right i didn't just come off the wagon but yes that's the idea Uh yes so um you put your deposit in and they just kind of mark it on the ledger you know caitlin deposited a thousand dollars so the bank now owes you a thousand dollars right does that part make sense so far yeah my thousand dollars like they didn't i didn't loan the Oh my God, I'm loaning them money when I put money in there? You are putting money in the bank. The bank is saying, hey, when you come back and ask for your $1,000 back, we'll give you your $1,000 back, right? So, but it is, but that idea of the bank owes you that money, you put the money in, and now the bank owes you that money back. Okay 
is important, right? That's right. what a deposit is. Right. Uh, so that money in the bank is your asset, right? right? It's something that you own that you expect to increase in value over time, maybe. Uh, but on, from the bank's perspective, it's a debt. Okay. And the agreement is when I come back and ask for it, they'll give me the same amount of money or whatever right. amount of money within that range. Okay. Right. But then the business of banking is they take your $1,000 and they say, well, Caitlin's probably not going to come back for this anytime soon. Or Caitlin and all her friends or Caitlin and all of you know, the Bay Area or Caitlin and everyone in the country you're not yeah. all going to come back to the bank at the same time asking for your money back. Okay. So instead of keeping money in the safe, marked Caitlin Meredith. <laughs> Don't touch these mine. Yeah, do not touch Caitlin's $1,000. They say, okay, well, we have now all of this money in deposits. We can lend it to people who need to borrow money and charge them some rate of interest, a higher rate of interest. So okay. people need mortgages, right? People right. need car loans. People need business loans. People need all types of borrowings. So the idea of a bank is you borrow money from depositors and then you lend it out and you get to keep the difference. Okay. The people you're lending it to through something like a mortgage are paying you interest for the money. So whatever, between two and 7% you're getting on that money. And so you're making money off of the, oh, I don't even know how to say it. You're making off money off of the money you have other people's money that you lent out to yet other people. Exactly. Okay. okay. So if you, if you deposit your $1,000, maybe your bank, you don't pay them for safekeeping. They pay you for keeping okay. the money safe. Maybe they pay you 1% on your savings account or 2% or 3% on your savings account. Okay. But then they turn around and say, okay, well, I can lend this $1,000 to someone who needs to buy a car. I can lend it to someone and make 8%. Did they so, ask my permission to do that? Like all those documents I signed without reading, is that essentially what they said? No. Oh, it's just understood. That's what a bank is. So yes. Okay. Once you walk in the door, you should already know what's going on. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's what it's what a bank is. It's <laughs> what the banking system is. Is your if I can lend the money at eight percent, and I can borrow it from you at three percent. I get to keep the 5% difference. Okay. I would like to just say that the community bank atmosphere lends one to think with the big safe in the back that you see, I think really paints the picture of the bank I described in the very beginning, which is your money is right here downtown where you left it and we're here with those little deposit slips so you can get your money out of its locker. Like there's nothing about a small town community bank that says like the second we get your money, we're shipping it off out <laughs> to other places to make us a bunch of money. Anyway. No, that, that, that is true. Right. I mean, it does, there is some money 
in the bank, in the vault, right? Because if you come back for your $1,000, they want to have $1,000 in the bank to give you back because they owe you that money. But I think maybe where you're going with this is what happens when everybody shows up on the same day asking for all of their money back. Yeah. And when I look at my balances online, it's just like a theoretical spreadsheet number. It's not actually that someone could go in the back and count out my (laughs) $1,700. They're like, oh, yeah, it looks like this is how much you would be owed if you ever ask for it back. It's okay. Yeah. So what they are holding, the little county out cash machine when you go to the bank and actually ask for the money or the ATMs, that's like a fraction of the total money that they're managing in all of the accounts and making a bunch of decisions about what to do for them to make more money. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I I knew it wasn't the nonprofit sector, (laughs) but... (laughs) I thought there was a bigger difference between a bank and a hedge fund. Oh, no. I mean, and so this is where I'm going to stop you. A bank is not a hedge fund. The banking industry is highly, highly, highly regulated. More so than investment organizations. Okay. Right. So that idea of a bank taking your deposits, first of all, have you heard of FDIC insurance? <laughs> it's on my list of questions. I've heard of it. Do I know what the hell it means? No, but I can say it many times in a row. FDIC, FDIC. But yes, we'll be getting to that if you want to now. That's fine. Okay. So your deposits are insured up to $250,000 per person per bank, meaning there's no chance that you would lose money up to $250,000. Okay. It, it would be backstopped by insurance no matter what happens to the bank. So that's kind of the, the protection on kind of that front end. And that's where most of us interact with the bank. Right. Right. Like you said, we take our sweaty dollars there. They put the money in the bank for us. They keep track of how much they owe us back. Um, and really, like for a consumer, all you need to know is, well, if I put $250,000 into this bank account, I will definitely get it back no matter what. In this country. In this country, in the U.S. Yes. yes. Yeah. Because I've lived in a lot of countries where that is not true. Uh, or they absolutely. close down the ATMs or the banks actually run out of current paper currency so people can't get it. But in our yes. country, the way it is right now, 2023, March 2023... That's how it works. Okay. That's absolutely how it works. And then on the other side, when we talk about, well, how can banks invest that money? How can they use your money to make more money? There are a zillion rules requiring what types of loans they can make to what types of people and parties. How much of those loans have to be to perfectly safe borrowers like the U.S. government, how many of them can be riskier loans to mortgage borrowers or small businesses. There are, I mean, just pages and pages and pages, books and books of banking regulations. So that's where it's not it's not a hedge fund, right? It's not. um, It's highly regulated. I retract my comparison. (laughs) 
I don't want to lead our listeners astray. Okay. It's not, it, it is general. I mean, because we always say it's like such a safe place to put your money is that you won't make any money if you keep Correct. all your money in a checking account. So it's like, it's safety is its hallmark. And also that's like uh, one of the risks of putting it is there is you won't make any more money off of your money. Exactly. It's too yes. safe. The, yes. It's risk is it's too safe. A bank putting your money in the bank. Yes. Yes. Okay. For us for putting our money in the bank. So I'm talking about the people. Regular going, people. For regular people. Okay. Like it's, there's, there's no risk to putting okay. your money in a bank up to $250,000 per person okay. per bank. Okay. So Sarah sent out a newsletter to her clients and in it she talked, Sarah's like a huge basketball person and she highlighted a Greek basketball player who came to America and I guess made more than $250,000 and spread out all of his money. Will you tell the story? So there is a very famous, really, really good basketball player who plays for the Milwaukee Bucks named Yanis Antetokounmpo. And he, his family's originally from Nigeria. They immigrated to Greece, and that's where he grew up. And so when he came to the U.S. to play, uh, you know, he now makes a gazillion dollars. But one of the things he brought with him to the U.S. is a healthy skepticism about the financial system. And so, you know, he takes part of his NBA star player salary and he divides up all of the cash that he wants to keep on hand. He parses it out only up to the $250,000 FDIC limits at all of these banks spread out across the country because he knows that any money above $250,000 is uninsured and therefore at risk. And having lived through a financial crisis in Greece, he's not willing to take that risk. So this is something that a lot of Americans, we every once in a while we have a financial crisis, right? But then, you know, it resolves itself, it gets resolved some way and we kind of get fat and happy and kind of forget these things. But Yanis did not forget and so he, has his cash spread out only up to the $250,000 FDIC limits, which is really, I mean, really clever and a lot of work, right? Yeah, I mean, poor guy. He has to find a different bank for each of his $250,000 parcels. <laughs> I mean, oh. talk about a part-time job. Oh. Yes, but that I love that example because it's, I mean, it reminds me of like my grandparents telling me about the depression or my grandmother only filling up the bathtub a quarter of the way because, you know, depression era heating was expensive or something like that. Like these things that carry with us, it's like a living memory of what can go wrong even when you think nothing could go wrong. Nothing could change. It's all good and nothing will ever change. Yes. Agreed. Um, and I think that people immediately, when Silicon Valley Bank was taken over by the FDIC, um, immediately people went back to the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. It seems like it's far away, but we still all have this muscle memory about like what a real banking crisis and financial crisis looks like because it wasn't that long ago that we actually had one. And the lies, the primary one, which was it's too big to fail. 
like this marketing propaganda, we were told, even those of us who don't didn't understand any of it at the time, that these th- nothing bad could happen because they were too big or nothing bad can happen because the market will regulate itself or nothing bad. Can- and then the thing that couldn't happen happens. And so your the sense you take away from it is like another bad thing happens that couldn't happen. And then what's next? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think the banking industry is where people really want there to be a clear set of rules that apply to everyone for all times. And that's not the case. Um, yeah. There are the the banking system in the U.S. certainly, which is kind of the, the largest financial system in, um, in the world, um, and the global financial system uh, is so important that people, I mean, regulators, Congress, legislators, people will do whatever it takes to keep it working, even if it means changing and adjusting the rules whenever something bad happens. Certainly with Silicon Valley Bank, I think there were a lot of red flags that, I mean, most people didn't see or understand or know. Part of it, it seems like, was the strategy that Silicon Valley Bank chose to undertake, which is different from the way most banks operate. Okay. Silicon Valley Bank's customers were different from most other banks' customers. Their core customer base were startups and tech companies in the Bay Area and nationwide. So that was their core clientele. Right. Which is really different from, you know, Frost Bank here in Texas or, you know, the credit union up the street or even, you know, Bank of America or or Chase or, you know, whoever. So, you know, that that was the first key. If you imagine having a smaller number of clients right. with bigger chunks of money, that in and of itself for a bank is a risk. You have like a concentration risk, right? Right. And it's sort of a league of its own because in a normal bank, people like us, our money's insured, as you said, up to $250,000. And here now, most of your clients wouldn't have most of their money insured. Right. Because it's in the millions. It's not in the hundred thousands. Right. And so you have a bunch of people starting a business who are like, okay, I've got $10 million. I've got payroll coming up. I have, you know technology I need to buy. You just have, you're running your business and you're certainly assuming that the bank is going to be fine, that the money is going to be there when you come back for it. But also that you're going to need it in the kind of short term. Like investors don't give you $10 million to use in 10 years. Like the expectation is you're going to make something of it soonish, right? Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, maybe this is I don't know, like, like I'm sympathetic to those business owners thinking like, yeah, you know, if I had a million dollars in the bank and I had it earmarked to use over the next six months, right? Right. One month, whatever it was, like that seems reasonable for a company to, to 
Absolutely. It's different than them saying, look, we have $10 million. We want to invest for our long-term strategy. So we're going to invest it with Schwab to make money over time. Like this is work. These are working dollars, dollars that have jobs in the near future. Right. So for Silicon Valley Bank, that was the deposit base. Right. Right. Which was different than a lot, a lot, a lot of other banks. So that made it unique. Then on the other side, you have, you know, what we talked about, a bank will take deposits and then lend, sometimes we call it lend on the on the long end, right? Um, or at the long end of the yield curve. So I have deposits that I know theoretically anyone could come back for at any time. Right. And I'm supposed to give those people their money back, right? Right. When they ask for it. Right. So that's on the short end, on the deposit base side. And then, like we mentioned, the way a bank makes money is taking those deposits and lending it out for longer periods of time. So this is what you were talking about. Right. But with Silicon Valley Bank, they also, depending on the economy, were probably expecting we'll always have more depositors because start there's always a new startup. Like not in 2008, but like in the recent years, like there's startups everywhere. So we're always going to have new clients coming that just got their first round of funding. And so they could have some hubris, some a false sense of security about the incoming dollars they didn't know about for sure. But like given our pattern right now, we're just, this is never going to end. We're always going to have new money coming in. Right. I mean, so certainly like not only would a growing bank assume that the deposits would keep growing, but there would also be an assumption that all of your depositors don't come back on the same day to ask for their money back. Yes. Right. So you have those two assumptions that a banker would be making. Okay. So that's, that's the deposit base, right? And then like there's the loans on the long end too. Right. So if you think about a mortgage, like maybe some of these, you know, freshly minted millionaires who are the CEOs or founders of startups, maybe they want to buy a house. Right. Who is going to lend you the money? Maybe it's Silicon Valley Bank. That's a 30 year mortgage, a 30 year obligation. Right. The bank assumes it will get its money back, but in drips and drabs over 30 years. Right. Um, You can lend money to the U.S. government, either, you know, you can lend it to them for a month or you can lend it to them for 30 years. Same with car loans, like all of these loans are maturing and you're getting your money back over different time periods. Right. So you're right that when you lend money out, typically you get higher interest rates on longer term loans. The nuance that I want to throw in there. Is that, do you remember, have we talked about bonds on the show before? Yeah, you were in the bond market and you had uh, yeah. to figure it out from the inside out as the only female. <laughs> I like that. The only female in the, the bond, bond market. bond market. Yeah. yeah. No. One of the, the, the most famous feature of bonds, if you're an, a bond investor, is that if interest rates go up, the price of bonds goes down. Okay. So what do you know about interest rates over the last year? Very, very low. They started oh, low. 
they started low. I mean, I all I can associate is what people are complaining about getting in their high yield savings accounts or mortgages. So, you know, they started out really mortgage rate interest rates were so low. Anybody mm-hmm. could buy a house and then they've been creeping up. So the housing market has been much slower because people don't want to pay for more expensive loans. So they've right. been going up. Interest rates have been going up. And people have been happier with their high yield savings accounts because interest rates are finally something that like registers on some sort of measuring device. Correct. But if you made a mortgage loan at the end of 2020 at 2.5 percent. Yeah. And now a new mortgage can be issued at 6 percent. Right. People are going to be willing to pay you less money for your house, yes. No, not for your house. Hold on. Oh. Like, I'm talking about the loan. This is where things get confusing. A 2.5% mortgage, if I wanted to sell that to another bank. Oh, I thought you meant the house. I can only no. think in yeah. terms of selling yeah. the house. Okay. <laughs> Put Why the are house, we selling the house? Yeah. Put the house out of your mind. Are we moving? Okay. No. Got it. Not I'm the house. I'm a bank. I got this mortgage that's a 2%, but that's not a great deal for me because I'm only making 2% on it. So I'm trying to sell it to someone who who wants to buy that. Well, maybe maybe you don't want to sell it. You just want to wait for it to mature over yeah. 30 years and take your 2.5% interest that you, the bank, are getting every year. Yeah, it's better than nothing. Uh-huh. Right. It's already made. That's one of the investments we made as a bank. We're making new investments now. But that's one of our investments is a 2.5% right. mortgage. Now we're trying to make... mortgage loans, right? Right. So that we can collect the 6% over time. Right. But where this like goes off the the rails in terms of understanding and in terms of Silicon Valley is what if a bunch of your depositors come asking for their money today? Right. You don't have it because it's all in 2.5% mortgages that you made three years ago. How do you get the money to pay off your depositors. You have to sell the mortgages. Okay. You can you can sell a mortgage, you can buy and sell mortgages amongst banks or, you know, yeah. hedge funds or whoever's whoever's buying it. But that 2.5% mortgage is now worth way less to a new buyer today because right. it only pays 2.5% instead of 6%. So does that part make sense? It's a low yielding thing they're buying. Yes. So they're not going to pay very much for it. Exactly. So if Silicon Valley Bank has a bunch of 2.5% mortgages on their books, those are the bank's assets. Right. But now they have to sell them because yeah. they need money to pay back their depositors. They're going to they lose have- money. They're going to lose money and it's going to happen fast because of the way banks make money that mismatch is the real source of risk in banking it's well if if silicon valley banks depositors didn't all come to the bank on the same day asking for their money back we wouldn't be having this conversation yeah. Right. They'd still be collecting their 2%, 2.5% from Sun Mortgages, their 6% from other mortgages, you know, that interest on their car loans and paying back their depositors. You know, when a few people show up, they'd give them their money back. But when it all happened at once, all of a sudden, the assets that Silicon Valley Bank had had to be 
marked down very quickly in order to turn them into cash. Okay, I understand the mechanism, but it feels like everything you've taught me before would be don't put all your eggs in a 2.5% mortgage investments. So for this exact scenario, like obviously this is an emergency, like maybe not a single bank could deal if everybody that had money in it came to ask withdraw it would collect there it wouldn't there wouldn't be enough money Mm -hmm. so i get that that silicon valley bank is no exception there however and so they must plan on we need to have 40 percent always available for everybody but beyond that that's a safe unless apocalypse we don't have to plan on that however if too much of their money was tied up in the 2.5% mortgages, it's sort of inevitable that they might be able to serve even fewer than 40% of their customers if they came in needing their money. And on top of that, if something shifted in the investment world and people weren't giving money to startups anymore, they wouldn't have new money to flood with all those things. Like there's all these contingencies for things not working out exactly the way they would in an ideal world. And to what degree do we expect them to have thought through those contingencies and not acted like arrogantly with whatever the economic environment was at the time. Yeah. And this is where I think you're exactly right, that each bank has, you know, professional banking professionals. (laughs) Is that a big professional professional banking professionals? Yes. Banking is supposed to be boring, right? It's supposed to be boring. You're making a little bit of money all the time, but you are managing your assets, like you said, and diversifying in however ways bankers diversify to make sure you don't get caught in this type of scenario. And with the Silicon Valley Bank story, like for me, I think the most alarming detail is that they didn't have a chief risk officer all of last year. Their chief risk officer which a bank is supposed to have, that's who's managing the risk of the balance sheet. Doing the numbers every day, like, oh, shit, we don't have enough to give if more than this number of people want their money back. Hold off all new investments. Keep the money that we have. Whatever. Right, right. Like, at a bank, there is a committee. There are people who are managing that asset mix to make sure that they don't get caught in this type of scenario. Silicon Valley Bank didn't have that person last year. Is that legal? I think it's legal. I mean, that might change. That might be one of the things that changes right away. But that, in retrospect, now that everybody looked deeper, like, wait a yeah. minute, like, like the, the old guy, he retired. He didn't retire. He moved to a different bank. He went to a different job, like in March of because last year. he looked year. at the numbers and was like, oh, just, uh. <laughs> Maybe, maybe that will be dug into. Why did this more person time with leave? My family. <laughs> Why did it take them so long to hire a new person? And what happened in the interim? That is a really interesting part of this story. Yeah. But I think it's also a part that is specific to Silicon Valley Bank. So this is where, like, the flashbacks to the the, the great financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine. During that period of time, you'd had a long series of years where kind of all the banks ended up exposed 
to these very risky investments. And by exposed to risky investments, you mean they did really bad risk calculations. They leveraged themselves too much and ran out of money and didn't have money to give to the people that had entrusted them with the money. Well, in the great financial crisis, the banks made a bunch of loans to people who didn't pay them back. Right. The subprime mortgages, right? Exactly. So if you, that's one source of risk is a bank lends someone money and that person just doesn't pay them back. That's called credit risk. Right. Right. So that has to do with the the credit um, worthiness of the borrowers. Well, and also the overall economy, people losing their jobs, a pandemic hits, like all very, very external reasons for why someone who cannot, cannot pay back the money they were lent. Absolutely. So you and I did that episode on credit scores with Matt Schultz. There's, you know, um, corporate credit rating agencies that do it for companies. So, you know, there are ways to assess the credit. Yes, uh, the credit worthiness. So the great financial crisis was precipitated by just making a ton of loans to people who didn't pay them back, ultimately. So like that, that crisis was caused by credit risk. Got it. This crisis, if it turns into a crisis, or this, the Silicon Valley bank story was caused by what we call interest rate risk or duration risk. And that's the idea that on these long-term loans, if interest rates go up, the prices of bonds and loans goes down, down. and now your assets might be worth less than Right. The, de- the deposits that are being demanded by your depositors, right? And so there's that. And it's caused by interest rate fluctuations, not right. by credit of risk. Of which we have seen a lot in the past right. five years. Right. And so that, inter- especially over the last one year, interest rates went up so far so fast yeah. that this is one of the unintended side effects of that happening. And so now everybody's going around to all of the banks and f- trying to figure out okay, how much duration risk or interest rate risk does your bond or loan portfolio have? Yeah. Meaning, how much of your customer's money do you have tied up in investments that A, will take a long time to cash get get paid for, and B, are now worth less if you need to sell them? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Okay. And so that's that's the part of what is happening now with this cascading effect. Um, like, what is the what's the value of the assets that these banks have, and are they in balance with what they owe depositors? Um. So the fact that you're able to know this so in and out, and ex- and that I can grasp it, very. T- Slightly, is that this is a known pattern in the financial world. When interest rates go way down, this is the risk that follows. When they go way up, this is the risk that follows. So there's nothing that you're explaining right now that they wouldn't have known when they were throwing a bunch of cash into low interest mortgages. Anybody in this world would have been able to be like, oh yeah, they're doing this and here's the risks that go along with this strategy that they're doing now, which wouldn't mean don't buy any of these mortgages or don't offer any of these mortgages, but like there's gotta be a cap on it because if 
I know this is crazy to imagine, but the world economic climate changes. Yeah. Then they're too, as the finance people say, exposed in this market. Yeah. Um, And nobody was doing that or not enough people or somebody wasn't listening to putting all of their eggs in this basket that turned out to be a very risky one. Silicon Valley Bank's basket ended up being more vulnerable than either it knew, the bank itself knew, um, and it was precipitated by Peter Thiel telling all of his venture capital buddies to go pull all of their money out at one time. So it was like that double effect on each side that made it so fast and so dramatic. Okay, so they might have been able to like tiptoe on eggshells past the suit like oh wasn't it funny when we almost lost everything except for a big loud mouth in silicon valley who got wind of their sensitive financial times and said everybody get your money out now i mean well i think it wouldn't even be a, a tiptoeing because like the event that precipitated the need to sell lower priced assets happened because everybody pulled out at the same time. Okay, but I, right, right, which all banks are forgiven for not planning for that scenario every day, because if they did, they wouldn't be able to do what banks do. Like, it's just not realistic to run a bank with the assumption that tomorrow, any day, everybody's going to come ask for all their money. Is that, okay. Yeah. But aren't we 2023 to the point where we think anything can happen? The entire world could shut down four days from now. That's happened. Mm -hmm. And where we might not get any new money in our bank. And I know, like, even in our personal lives, we've stopped making these decisions. Like, I don't buy travel insurance now thinking like, oh my God, COVID could shut down any other thing. So I get that we're all loosening up from our tiny decisions to our bigger ones about like tomorrow the world could stop. But don't they have a bigger responsibility to not pretend that that couldn't happen again? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and this does go back to banking regulations trying to mitigate the types of risks that banks can take. Silicon Valley Bank, in the grand scheme of things, was not a huge bank. Right. It's a minor player. No one, as far as I can tell, nobody feels bad that all of the owners of Silicon Valley Bank (laughs) got wiped out. I don't think anybody's crying about that, right? The depositors, that is where there's some political backlash because it turns out that the the FDIC and the Treasury Department, I think, also like set up the or in the Federal Reserve, they set up programs that said, listen, nobody, no depositors are going to lose money, even if they're over the $250,000 FDIC limit. So you saw the price of Silicon Valley Bank go from like $200 a share to nothing, right? That's those investors got wiped out, which is way different from depositors getting wiped out and losing money. And so regulators and bank regulations are trying to, you're trying to walk that line. You want people to have confidence in the financial system because I cannot overemphasize how important it is. We all rely on everybody's confidence in the system. Now owners of banks are absolutely going back to the people running the bank like, how exposed are we? How risky yeah. is this business what of banking? What if this happened to us? Right. Yes. What are the stress tests that I guarantee you 
every bank in the U.S. is running stress tests now, right? So that they can and answer that question. stress test is somebody being like, what if this happened? What if that happened? And someone running the exact numbers for what right. that would look like for them. Right. They do that very formally for the big banks, the two big to fail banks in the U.S. So Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, right? Like Wells Fargo, the huge banks have to go under, they have formalized stress tests that they have to pass. And if they don't pass them every quarter, I think, they don't get to issue dividends to their owners. They don't get to do share buybacks. They don't get to do a whole bunch of stuff if they don't pass the stress test. There's a consequence that's not just meant as a punishment. It's meant to protect their investors' money. Yes. And that's new as of the financial crisis. Okay. The so-called Frank Dodd. Yes, that's right. The Frank Dodd Act. Yeah. That's so good. Okay. But Silicon Valley was an exception to that because they later went in to amend it so that banks with a lower amount of assets wouldn't have to do those stress tests because they said it was too onerous. It's too much work. And that's not fair because they don't have all of this money. Exactly. So all of those reams and reams and reams of banking regulations, the the most onerous ones now only need to be used by the too big to fail banks yeah. and these smaller regional banks as of what 2018 is that when like kind of they got a lesser version of the stress tests in 2018 so they didn't have to do as much stress testing because it's not inexpensive to do these stress tests and have all of this compliance and all of these well, and quite frankly, they couldn't have if they didn't have a risk officer, because theoretically, <laughs> right, right. that would have been their job, right? Yeah, right, right. So I don't, yeah. So I don't know what was happening at Silicon Valley Bank, but this idea—you want people to want to make money from banks. You yeah. want a lot of banks doing lots of things to get money into the economy, so that we can borrow money for mortgages and starting businesses and all that stuff. You want lots of banks, and you want them to be able to lend money. That is so important to an economy. But like you said, like, it has to be, if it's not done safely, that damage has to be contained in some way so it doesn't infect everything else. And so that's where we are now on March 18th is trying to figure out, can this be stopped before it starts getting out of control and people just start pulling their money out of, you know, out of banks that otherwise would be totally fine to cause these bank runs. And I think that's where um, the, the, the FDIC certainly like has a process for taking over a bank and shutting it down. They always come in on a Friday and then tell you over the weekend what they decided. And so that by Monday, everybody understands what's happening. The Department of Treasury has started new programs to try to give banks a lifeline or a program to make sure they can meet depositor redemptions. Po- depositor redemption is me coming to my bank and saying I want my $1,300 back. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Um, is this your passive aggressive way of telling me to take the money out from under my mattress and bring it back to the credit union and put it in there where it was until two weeks yeah, ago? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know what, like the the upside to this for consumers is that, so right now, um, CDs offered by banks are paying a lot, right? Because now all of these banks are like, 
oh shit, yeah. we gotta get we need money. We need deposits, right? Like, and yeah. so we're willing to pay. I think, I think I saw like a six month CD at over five percent the oh, other really? day, right? So you can keep it under your mattress. Or if it's less than $250,000 under your mattress, you could go out shopping and put it in any bank in the United <laughs> States in an FDIC-insured CD and maybe get 5% instead of no percent under your mattress. So they're offering higher percentages to be like, hey, you can make money with us. Come here for two reasons. One, to um, incentivize provide us with an incentive to put our money there, but also because well, we also kind of need more cash. Right, right. <laughs> like, Everybody wins. Win-win. <laughs> Your encouragement of all of us keeping high confidence in the banking system and just keeping our smiles plastered on and keeping our deposits <laughs> all around. Um, because if one person loses confidence and that spreads, reminds me of something crazy, which is, so I was an aid worker in Africa forever and we had these land cruisers and you were often transporting patients or somebody else who had never been in a car before and on terrible, I use the word road lightly, like just very rugged driving in places with, you know, either that used, used to have road with lots of potholes or over sort of dirt paths. And our fear was always that if one person puked, everyone would puke. It was never an in-between number. It was like, it was contagious. And if you made it and no one had done it, you were fine. But the second one person did, yeah, it's all it over. just, the entire Land Cruiser was full. So it sort of reminds me of that, that like you're trying to keep everyone super happy because the whole system depends on everybody, not, no one catching a whiff of that fear or revulsion and having a similar reaction. Yes. I mean, yes. And I would add to that, that whatever comeuppance you think that bankers are going to get from a banking crisis, regular consumers, regular people will get 10 times that. Right. And so there's no, it's it's a lose-lose situation to have a banking crisis. Like, um, you want to keep it contained. You want to keep things moving because ultimately, if a regular person can't get a mortgage or can't get a small business loan or can't get a car loan, they will suffer 10 times, a thousand times more of course. than a banker, right? It's just like, so we can all like hem and haw about like moral hazard and all of those things. But my opinion is whatever it takes to keep things on the rails needs to be explored. Like small businesses need loans all the time to keep all the afloat. Time. And if then they change thresholds for who can borrow or how much or how strong their business, then like a lot of independent small businesses won't be able to borrow money anymore. Yeah. Who do you think the riskiest borrowers are? Right. Right? It's Me. <laughs> us. Right? It's us. It's us. Right? Like this is this is something that could be repeated at other banks. It doesn't mean that it's a huge crisis. It means that they're going there are going to be some banks where the same thing that happened at Silicon Valley Bank maybe could something very similar could happen at other regional banks. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we need to panic across the board. It doesn't mean there's going to be a flashback to 
2009. Um, and like if you're interested in, I don't know, learning about the banking system, you can read the articles that come out on how the Federal Reserve and the Department of Treasury and the FDIC handle uh, bank closures. I don't know. Like I was about to say because it's actually really interesting, but then I tried to stop myself. <laughs> uh, but that there are a lot of very serious professional people that work in banking, unlike some of these other industries where it can kind of turn into a clown show. Um, that is not the case with the banking and financial system these days. There are very serious, thoughtful people who are you know, doing the best they can to just keep our financial system strong. Um, and we are in a different place than we were back in 2008, 2009. That's very reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me the piece that you find so interesting about what the FDIC, like is this, I am imagining the movie scene where it's more like an FBI raid, but like, you know, they lock the, the front door, they put a sign on the front saying customers refer to this website for more information or something. And they come in and all their people turn off all the computers and get the. Yeah, I mean, the FDIC shows up usually after the stock market closes on a Friday and they'll just show up and be like, we're here to take over your bank. Right. Like it's it, you're not a going concern anymore. You can't be basically you can't be trusted to run this bank anymore. And all of the FDIC people will just kind of go into the bank. They'll get an accounting of what the financial state of the bank really is. And a lot of times over the weekend, they'll try to find another stronger bank to take it over, right? To let, they'll try to merge a weaker bank with a stronger bank. They'll try to get someone to buy it, like because the FDIC can be trusted to give everybody the real information, right? Like they're not going to lie to anybody, but and they're right. going to try to orchestrate like these mergers or these marriages or these purchases um, instead of just letting a bank fail. Wow. Um, is anyone arrested? Like, are, are they not allowed to leave the room? Are they like cell phones taken? I mean, I don't think that people really, uh, it's been, I, I can't even think of a time where a banker was arrested. You would have to you'd have to be defrauding people, not just making bad decisions, right? There would have to be, when's the last time a banker got arrested for their bank failing? I'm sure there's something from the financial, the great financial crisis that I'm not thinking of that's very obvious, but I can't think of it right now. Usually it's just like, oh, that sucks, right? Like your depositors all came on the same day and took out all their money. Like, and, and you said this before, like no bank can withstand that. Like, right. Like right. a Bank of America, if every person with a Bank of America account went on Monday and took out all their money, Bank of America would fail too, because it's just the money's not in the vault, you know, like we talked about at the very beginning. Well, and obviously, if I tweeted like, uh oh, this bank is in trouble, A, I don't have a Twitter account, yeah. <laughs> B, nobody would listen to me, but like it is a, a risk is social media. Yeah, yeah, that is. That's different from how it was during the financial crisis, right? There wasn't as much social media clout that does make this pretty interesting. That if you get one person like Peter Thiel 
who a lot of people listen to, if you get one person, one person can cause a bank panic. And that really wasn't the case before. So that is, it's a new risk in this world. And also that we all bank digitally. So like your your withdrawal can be like, boop, 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 you know. Right. It's not like, okay, now I have to get off work early, get in my car, drive down to the bank, whatever. Yeah. It's like a while in line getting a taco, I can move $3 million. <laughs> But don't worry. Are are you under $250,000 FDIC? Yes, and I'm also limits? not on Twitter. So I feel yeah. like I'm totally secure. No, I don't. <laughs> I wouldn't know if someone tweeted that to me. I couldn't tweet it to the world. Um, okay. Coming back to banking specifically, the rules are there to keep one person's miscalculation of risk. Right. Um, it's contained. Right. Right. Right, right, Like, you don't want systemic risk where across the board, people are encouraged to take outsized risk for minuscule gains. So you do want to prevent that. That's like moral hazard, right, in the system. You don't want to incentivize people Like the subprime mortgage crisis. Right. Like, you you don't want to incentivize people to take risk, but you also don't want unintended harm from, you know, one person or one small group of people who just got it wrong. Like, you you don't want that to blow up the financial system. You're trying to, like, keep it, you know, just kind of keep it in between, right? So that that we all think about the risk that we're taking, but that we don't panic about something that is not risky. So this is where, like, don't go to the bank and take all of your money out of the bank. You don't have to. You are gaining nothing. What are you going to do with all that money? Like you're introducing a new risk. Right. Like, where are you going to put it, <laughs> right, if not in a banking system? So, like, we're trying to be calm enough. And I, consumers should definitely have an idea of the risk they are taking, which, again, comes back to that $250,000 limit. Right. Right. So now I think most people are aware of that or reminded of it. But if you are not taking any risk if you're at any bank, if you're at Silicon Valley Bank, if you're at the bank that's the next bank to fail, if you have less than $250,000, you're taking no risk. Okay. Okay. So I don't, with my, you know, four, four figure <laughs> savings account, don't have to go interview the president of my no. local credit union no. to be like, all right, let's talk bonds. Yeah. So what's no. your vision for the 2024, whatever, because I have under $250,000. So my security, like they are truly safe for me, yes. my checking and savings accounts that are all well within the $250,000 threshold are completely safe. Yes. If I have more than $250,000 in cash that for some reason I need to keep as a cash object in a bank account, I have some other options like our basketball player who puts them in different accounts or whatever. Maybe I should be investing that money. But if I'm starting a business and I need to park it somewhere, then it might be a time to be more curious about who is making decisions for what this money that I've deposited, where it goes. Yes, And then I'm going to exactly. hire somebody to do that for me. Yes. Yes. There's there's no risk and there's no gain. Like with those FDIC insurance limits, I think is my only, my only real point. So okay. spend as much time as you want to like researching your bank. And if you only want to support bankers that bank the way you think they should bank and you really want to dig into it, then cool. 
but you don't have to, right? You don't only have to bank with like the very best to take like the perfect amount of risk and like the perfect, (laughs) like the perfect duration hedging and the perfect strategy, right? Like there's a lot of gray area and it's okay. Like, well, I appreciate that point that I think I just keep coming back to like, there is one way, the smart way to do it, which is to mitigate all risk. But to be honest, the financial system I would come up with would be like one shell equals one shell. And you keep those (laughs) shells like there would be no such thing as interest. Like it would have to be so simple like that the world, I guess, would collapse if I had my way. So, um, but that, that like reasonable people can differ in their approaches to all of this stuff. And for the most part, that works as long as they're not leveraging too much of your money and whatever their little schemes are. It's just, I know this is a product of the news cycle as well, but it's hard to read about this and then to have all of these pundits come from that. Oh, this was a huge red flag. This is a huge red flag. So you start to feel a little like, well, wait a second. If there was all these red flags, how could it have gone on for so Like, are we all yeah. idiots? No. And like analyzing financial companies is way harder than almost any other company. There should be no expectation that anyone can analyze a bank and figure out if it's worth having deposits there or worth, you know, like it's just it's really, really, really difficult. So just I think it's a I think it's a waste of all of I think it's a waste of time. I agree with you on that. It just makes it even scarier because they hold our money. And if they're too complex for us, it's like they could be doing a lot of secret stuff there and nobody can even tell till it's too late. It is really difficult to get a bank charter and to become a bank. It's it's really, really hard that the just the banking regulations that are set up and the people who are allowed to have a bank charter and allowed to set up a bank. It's really, really difficult. Like there's lots of like background checks and, you know, like all of these hoops you have to jump through to do it. So it's not something that just anybody can do. OK. OK. Um, Sarah, I'm guessing I know already, but I want to hear what a woman on the verge of a financial breakthrough can do today vis-a-vis her bank. Yes, I maybe I'll do two. Okay, okay, so the first thing I would do is for those of you who are lucky enough to have cash balances uh, over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, I would just make sure that you have your cash spread out and you are not keeping cash over the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar FDIC insurance limit at any one bank. So for those of you who have either like to keep a lot of cash on hand or for whatever reason you have a lot of cash, just check in on those limits. And it can be as easy as looking at every, just look at every bank that you bank with um, and add up your checking, savings, and certificates of deposits or CDs that you have with each bank and making sure that when you combine those all together, you're not above $250,000. Okay. Um, so that's uh, number one. I mean, and I would say I'm kind of intrigued by the way that this uh, banking scare has affected FDIC insured CD rates. I mean, and this is even going, yeah, this is even going to like high yield savings, which I used to hate talking about. And now all of a sudden, like I kind of love talking about high yield savings because it's starting to get interesting. So for these CD rates, you can get the highest rates going through a brokerage account. 
and I hope that doesn't sound too confusing, but if you have a Fidelity account or a Schwab account or TD Ameritrade, if you call them or click on the fixed income tab on your brokerage account. She's using her finger right now. My finger is clicking and my imaginary mouse. (laughs) You can look at the CDs that are available nationwide. And so why I love this is like, okay, if I bank at, I bank at PNC. um, So if I walked into my PNC branch, they would probably say like, Sarah, you can get a 12 month CD 2.5%. I know that if I go through my Schwab account, that I can get a 12-month CD at over 5%, um, maybe 5.25%. So if you have money that you want to keep perfectly safe, but you don't mind locking up for the term of a CD, three months, six months, okay, right, you can earn interesting rates of return on very short-term money. So instead of keeping money in savings, you could move some of that into an FDIC-insured CD and maybe get over 5%, taking no risk. I don't know. I think that's interesting. I do too. And I love that that was such a quick turnaround because it was less than a year ago that we recorded an episode about high yield savings and you're like, oh my God, I don't want to talk about it. And so it's just another reminder of how things can change over a quick amount of time that allow us to reevaluate where our opportunities are to build our money. And for some people, a CD feels really safe. And right now you're in luck because you can actually make like a detectable interest rate. <laughs> right, right. Whereas for a couple of years in there, it was really like the time it took to invest, put money in one cost more than actually the interest you would receive from it. Leading exactly. to Sarah's scorn. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get, that's the one that I thought you were going to say. I, th- I thought it would be, don't take your money out of the, if you can do one thing today, it's keep your money yeah. in wherever it is. Yeah in your banking, in your savings and checking account. But I love that idea for people that have more than 250000 to like really think about you You can do it in such a way where you feel safer. It's a little bit more admin work to change it to different banks, but yeah. that's a way to be completely safe. And then the other is to take advantage of these CDs for the money that's like hanging out that we don't need today, but might be half of our emergency funds if it's a three-month one. Exactly. Like, Okay, thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Caitlin. Do you have any dumb questions about investing or finance? Ask us on our website, womenontheverge.com. If your partner is making you ask for money, giving you an allowance, or not letting you know about family income, this could be financial abuse. Learn more at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-SAFE. This episode was edited by our co-producer, Kelly West, and our music is by Bad Bad Hats and Devmo. I know the first thing you notice is that I'm covered in gold. The trip at the wrist, it can turn a hot bitch cold. To get what you want in life, girl, you gotta be bold. Now I'm a tyrant, and I...
This podcast contains general information that is not suitable for everyone. The information contained here should not be construed as personalized investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. There is no guarantee that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast will come to pass. Investing in the stock market involves gains and losses and may not be suitable for all investors. Information presented herein is subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a solicitation to buy or sell any security.